morning, friends, and welcome. It's so nice to have, have uh, those of you who are here this morning in the building, as well as to be welcoming those of you who are joining us online. Uh, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, there's our theme today, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've got a wonderful hymn to begin with, a hymn which is rich in praise of God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. So for those of you who are here in the building, please stand and let's sing. And for those of you at home, uh, let's, let's belt this one out as well. Yeah. 
please be seated. Uh, well, welcome again uh, to St Matthew's in person here in the building. It is just lovely to see those of you who are here this morning uh, coming to join together. And it's great to know uh, that for those of you who are not able to be with us, uh, that you're able to be with us uh, through this medium. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here. And I understand we might even have Catherine West joining us from London this morning uh, with her mother, Janet, uh, reading later in the service. Welcome to you. I'm not sure what hour it is across in London, uh, but we're glad to have you with us. Uh, today, oh, by the way, my name is Andrew Graham. Uh, for those of you who are guests, either online or in person, uh, I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, my roles include uh, looking after the congregation that's normally here at 8 o'clock uh, on Sunday morning, together with overseeing pastoral care uh, across our family of congregations here at St Matthew's. Uh, but welcome. I'm really quite excited about this morning as uh, Nathan comes to speak with us in the last of our little series, our summer series, In Him. Uh, because today we get to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in a world which is short on hope, the, the resurrection of Jesus in history makes all the difference. And so we're looking forward to hearing a reading from 1 Corinthians 15. I actually became a Christian listening to a sermon on 1 Corinthians 15 way back in 1979. Uh, it just does make all the difference and Nathan will be sharing uh, something of that later in the service. Uh, as well during our service today, uh, we'll be praying for our nation uh, as Australia Day approaches. It's only right that we lift up in thanks for this nation and come before the Lord and ask for his blessing on this nation with all of the challenges uh, that we face as the people who live here. Uh, towards the end of the service, we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper. Uh, for those of you who are at home, if you haven't got uh, a little bit of bread and a cup to drink something from, uh, it would be great if you can organise that before the end of the service. Uh, but welcome. It's great to have you all here. Right now, we are going to, with one voice, declare what it is that we believe about God and his great love for us in the words of the Apostles' Creed. So as that comes up on the screen, please join me as we recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, just a little news uh, from St Matthew's. Uh, firstly, to say again to those of you who are new with us, uh, how glad we are to have you joining us. Uh, I'll let you know that one way of communicating with us is through our online Connect card. Uh, you'll see the QR code there on your screen. Uh, you can also see reference to it in the description field below uh, for those of you who are online below the image on your screen. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you if you're new or visiting uh, to give us a chance to get back to you and welcome you further. 
Uh, but if there is anything, any way in which we can be helpful to you, particularly if you've been affected uh, by the coronavirus, uh, you may be suffering from it yourself or in isolation, and uh, we'd love to know that we, so that we can pray with you and provide whatever assistance is possible for you. Uh, by the way, on that front, lots of people have been asking me about myself. It's almost embarrassing for me. Um, having had COVID myself a few weeks ago, I've recovered very well. And in fact, I got a pretty light dose as far as I can tell. Some heavy symptoms for about 24 hours and then I was just tired. Which happened to correspond to when the cricket was on, so it was perfect. So, <laughs> Thanks so much for your expressions of care. One of the lovely things about being unwell that week uh, was so many people uh, expressing care and love. Uh, of course, if um, something comes up during the week and you don't have the QR code in front of you, just call the office and we'd love to hear from you. Now, there's a couple of other things to mention. Uh, things will really be getting underway uh, with our programs for St Matthew's come February, which is just over a week away. And uh, the first thing uh, to take note of is that we're running the uh, prayer and fasting week, uh, beginning on the 31st of January. This is something uh, that's been a feature of our life together here at St Matthew's over many years. Uh, a week in which really the big picture is we set aside a week to devote to bringing before God our hopes and plans as his people here and, and seeking the Lord's blessing upon us as his people and through us in the local community and beyond. Uh, so uh, fasting may be a part of that for you, a, a fast for a day or, or for the whole week. Um, but the idea is, whatever way you do it, it's a, it's a special week for devoting yourself to the Lord. We will be running prayer meetings here in the mornings. Uh, they'll be online. Uh, at lunchtimes, the staff will be uh, praying. Uh, you're very welcome to come and join us if you're able to be here in person. And there are a series of uh, prayer and, and praise meetings happening on the Monday night, the Tuesday night and the Wednesday night. Uh, the first... Uh, praying for the welfare of people who may be unwell in some way. Uh, the second in praying for family issues, so that's the Tuesday night. And the Wednesday night will be a prayer and praise uh, night led by our music director, Dave. Uh, more details will come out uh, as this week unfolds, particularly in Bruce's email, but just to give you a week's preparation for that. Uh, the final thing to mention by way of notices is that growth groups are a critical part of what we do as God's people here at St Matthew's, uh, where we meet in small groups to listen to God's word and help one another understand what it means for us and to support and pray for one another. It's a chance to receive and to give encouragement to others that you've made a particular commitment to. Uh, the groups meet at a variety of times through the day, morning, daytime, evening. Uh, some groups, um, there are just men, some are, there's just women. Most groups, they're, they're mixed groups. Um, they run through the week on different days as well. If you're not in a group, this year would be a really good year to find your way into one of those groups. Please contact Scott Petty. Uh, you could do that via the QR code or again just call the office through the week. Wonderful thing to be a part of a, 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 um, a growth group. We're going to turn our attention to prayer now and I'm going to lead us in prayer, as I mentioned, particularly for our nation but our prayers will also stretch a little wider to those affected uh, by the tsunami uh, in the Pacific, as well as to be praying for the summer camp for young people, which began yesterday. Let's come before our God in prayer.
Heavenly Father, as the God who from one man made all the peoples of the earth and determined where each should live, we thank you for your many blessings in this land today. But with grief, we acknowledge the long history of damage, especially in the relationship between the first peoples of this land and later arrivals. Lord God, none of us is without sin. So please forgive us and change us. Give us strength and grace to forgive, accept and love others as you have forgiven, accepted and loved us. Our hope is in you, Father. So please bring healing where there is brokenness and reconciliation where there is still hostility. But Lord God of this nation, we thank you for the good things we enjoy from your hand. We thank you for blessing this country with many years of peace and prosperity, with personal freedoms and with opportunities to enjoy your vast and good creation. We thank you for those who first brought the gospel of our Lord Jesus to this land. And we praise you for the salvation and hope we can know by your spirit in his name. Heavenly Father, may your grace, love and truth be the foundation on which families and communities are built in this nation. May this be a nation where resources are shared justly. And please teach us how to care for this land. Grant wisdom and courage to all who serve in government, especially our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, our Premier, Dominic Perrottet, and our local representative, Zali Stegall, James Griffin, and our Mayor, Michael Regan. We pray this so that our nation may be blessed by good government. And we ask that this will be a country where you defend and provide for all who are oppressed and in despair, that you would heal those who are sick in body or troubled in mind, and that you'd give skill and compassion to all who care for them. May all people, being treated, may all people be treated with dignity as those who are made in your image. And Lord, in this season, we pray particularly for strength to endure the ongoing impact of COVID-19. In your mercy, bring relief soon. And Father, we want to pray too for nations affected by the recent tsunami, especially for the people of Tonga, but also of Samoa and Fiji. We pray that they would receive the help they need to repair and rebuild infrastructure and homes. We pray for comfort to come to those who've lost homes, whose lives have been so massively disrupted. We pray you'll give strength and comfort in our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Father, we thank you so much for the young people of St Matthew's and for their friends. We pray for your protection over the summer camp which started yesterday. We thank you that it was able to get underway with uncertainty about whether that would even happen. We pray that it would be a week which is COVID free where those who are attending uh, are able to draw closer to you and come to know the joy of living in you. We pray that friendships will be strengthened and will be characterised by godliness. We pray that the experience of this week will be the kind of thing that enables young people to shape their whole lives around serving you. 
And Lord, we thank you for the leaders and especially for our youth minister, Stuart Jansen, who's directing the camp and speaking. We pray that through him and through them, through their faithful modelling of the Christian life, young people will know what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you listen as we pray and that you're pleased to answer our prayers. We entrust all these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We've got a chance to sing again, so thank you to our musicians for leading us. Please stand.
We have a fairly long reading, but we've cut it a bit. And um, we have a, a key chapter, of course, in the New Testament to read from. It's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 19 onwards. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. And it's on page 1154 in the Church Bibles. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you so you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he's determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. 
People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendour. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Thank you, Janet, and welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Nathan, if I haven't met you. Whether you're in the building or online, great to have you here this morning. Can I encourage you to keep uh, your Bibles open? We're actually going to be looking at the whole chapter. It's 58 verses long, so we didn't read the whole thing just now. Uh, but I will be referring to, to verses throughout the chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me. So keep it open in front of you so you can follow along. Let's uh, begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for giving us your good word and we thank you for giving us this amazing uh, passage of scripture and we ask Lord that this morning we might submit ourselves under it, that you might give us uh, ears to hear and hearts to receive everything you have to give us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. I wonder, what is your relationship to time? You ever, you ever pondered that question before? For instance, do you often find yourself thinking longingly about the past, about the way things used to be? Because there is a power, I think, to, to nostalgia and to our memories, isn't there? A real, a real tangible power. So are you someone that, that, that really likes spending time recalling your past experiences? Or maybe you much prefer living in the now, you know? You take a spur-of-the-moment kind of approach to life. You're at your most comfortable when you're following your instincts and your impulses. You're willing to take things as they come, to kind of throw caution to the wind and go where it blows. There's a nice kind of freedom to that approach, isn't there? Living in the moment. Perhaps, though, your thought life is most often consumed with pondering the future about what's coming up, about what's next. So you always seem to be making plans, you know? Is that you? Thinking ahead. And you'll have your plans, and then you'll have your contingencies for those plans. And then you'll have your backups for those contingencies for those plans. <laughs> well, at least you're going to be prepared, right? Past, present, future. Where do you tend to fall in your approach to time? course it's, it's not just going to be one way is it we've got we've all got a 
kind of a mix of the three, but there is going to be a particular bent, I think you'll often find, right? Like a, a comfort zone or a, a, a happy place. A way of approaching time that just kind of feels more right to you than others. The truth, of course, is that there's not really a right or wrong way. All of these approaches have their strengths and their weaknesses. They've all got a place. But it is interesting to think about the time dynamic, particularly in relation to the series that we've been working through together these past few weeks. For instance, two, two weeks ago with Scott, if you, if you caught that sermon, we heard that, that salvation and forgiveness are granted to all those who are united to Christ's death in Him, in His death. And that actually means that God no longer holds your past against you because it was held against His Son instead. And then last week, if you were here, Bruce explored with us what it means to be united to Christ's holiness. It means that in this present moment, you are sanctified, in right standing with God. And yet at the same time, you're also being transformed right now as we strive to live lives that resemble more and more who we are now. Today in this final week, we're taking a look at at being united to Christ's resurrection and the way that that radically reshapes the hope that we hold for the future. To do that, we're going to be unpacking a behemoth of a passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It is big, but it is magnificent, and it's easily one of the most significant passages in the whole Bible on the subject of resurrection, right? It is like the go-to place. I mean, as as, as we speak this morning, and as we prayed before, our, our, our youth... Our youth group is on summer camp, and they're actually spending the entire week just looking at this one chapter. For us, it's just today, which is why we didn't have time to read the whole thing. So can I encourage you actually to take some time this week to slow down and to actually read the whole thing from from verse 1 all the way through to verse 58 and just reflect on how magnificent a chapter it is, because it really is something. And one of the things I find striking about it is that even though resurrection really is kind of a future-focused thing, Paul manages to, to kind of draw both the past and the present into this picture as well. Here's how it's kind of constructed for us. What happened then guarantees what's next, and it reshapes the what now. Then, next, and now. Past, future, and present. Resurrection actually touches them all, as if there's, there's no part of time that's not somehow affected by what we're talking about this morning. What happened then guarantees what's next, and it reshapes the what now. That's where we're heading, and I hope you're up for it, because as far as subjects go, they really, it doesn't, doesn't get more important than resurrection. And, and that that comes across loud and clear, you'll see, as, we, as, as you read through the whole chapter. This is kind of like the, the climax of the entire letter to the Corinthian church. It's as if Paul has chosen to leave this most important thing to the very end. And Paul is writing this, we'll find, because it looks like some people in the church had fallen into the error, a grave error, really, of denying the reality of the resurrection 
You see, the major Greek philosophies of their day, they kind of viewed bodily resurrection as a ridiculousness, an absurdity. I mean, you might remember a couple of weeks uh, before the end of the year, last year, we we were spending time in the book of Acts, Acts 17 in particular, Paul's there at the Areopagus in Athens, and the moment he loses the crowd is the moment he starts speaking about resurrection, right? That's what gets him shouted down. Because the Greeks, they thought the, resurrect, the, the idea of a resurrection wasn't a nice idea, it was a ghastly one, right? Who would want to get stuck back in a body like this? Don't be ridiculous. That was kind of the pressure I imagine the Corinthian church was under as they tried to talk to people about the gospel, as they tried to receive the gospel themselves. And it seems that some people there were actually willing to turf the whole idea. Maybe they thought it would make Christianity more believable to their neighbours. I don't know, we're not told. But, but chapter 15 is basically Paul saying, hang on a second, you can't do that. You can't do that. And he says it in about <clears throat> the strongest way possible. You see, the reality of resurrection is not up for debate. Paul says. It's not something to quibble over. It's not just some blemish that you can lance from the surface, right? Resurrection is the beating heart of the Christian faith, Paul says. And so, to lose that is actually to lose everything. So, Paul begins his defense of resurrection by recalling the past, by reminding them of what happened then, how he begins the chapter, if you want to flick to it, if you've got your Bible there in front of you, from verse 3, he begins by reminding them of the gospel. Just take a quick look from verse 3, it's up on the screen as well, at the verbs that you can see. Christ died, He was buried, He was raised, and He appeared. But then notice, he goes on, he continues, right? And Notice what his emphasis is. The final verb gets repeated three more times. Appeared, appeared, appeared. It's like he really wants them to remember that Christ's resurrected body appeared, right? He really rose, in other words. He really rose, like really, really. That's what happened then. And the claim that Christ was, resurrect, uh, was resurrected, is a, is, it's a historical one, Paul saying. It's rooted in a, in a real time, in a, in a real place, with a real people. He really rose. And that's important, Paul says. In fact, you'll see there, he says it's of first importance. And in the verses that follow, he goes on to explain why. There's a uh, refreshing bluntness to the way Tim Keller puts it when he says this. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You see, everything hinges on the reality of resurrection. Everything. And that's exactly the point Paul goes on to make to the confused Corinthians. Without resurrection, the gospel is a lie he tells them. Without resurrection, we are still in our sins. Without resurrection, the dead are lost. 
And then verse 19, which we started with in our reading, without resurrection, we of all people are most to be pitied. Ouch. Uh, That's why Paul stresses again and again and again and again that Jesus' resurrected body appeared because resurrection is the beating out of the Christian faith, isn't it? Because without it, we have nothing. And it can't simply be dismissed as just some fanciful wish fulfillment. It's rooted in historical fact, isn't it? Attested to by hundreds of people that he appeared to in different places and at different times, he really rose. That's what happened then. And because of that, because he really rose, you will too. And that's where Paul turns to next, to the future. Take a look with me now at verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Notice the in Him language that's Paul, that Paul's using there, in Christ, right? It brings with it the promise of our own, our own resurrection, because in Christ means we are connected, united, bound to His resurrection. <clears throat> and there's no ifs, no buts, no maybes about it. It's a guarantee. As surely as Christ rose, so too will all those who are in Him. Now, I am not much of a gardener. My wife can freely attest to that fact. But I've got a seven-year-old son who is. He's growing strawberries at the moment. Every morning he gets up and he checks them. And he comes and gives us a report. But there's always that first morning where he comes crashing into the house. He's out of breath. And he's elated by the discovery of the first strawberry. Of course, he's not just excited about this first one, but rather the promise that this first one is making, right? (laughs) There are more strawberries on the way. That's what he's excited about. And he's excited by the fact that this first strawberry is proof of the fact that his little garden is working, right? The sun, the soil, the water, it's coming together. And this first strawberry confirms that. That's exactly the kind of image Paul is using as he refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits. Jesus walking from his tomb was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe, and it won't be the last. There will be plenty more where that came from. So, just like the first strawberry of the season in my son's little garden. Jesus' resurrection is the promise of more to come. And there's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes. All those who are in Him, who have been united to His resurrection, like Him, they too will rise. Because what happened then guarantees the next. The natural question that follows, of course, is, well, what's that actually going to look like? to be raised from the dead, like, it's a, what is that going to look like? We're not the only ones with that curiosity, you can see there in verse 35, 
Paul anticipates the same kind of question from the Corinthians. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? It's like, are we talking about reanimated corpses here? Like, how's God going to resurrect a decaying body? What's the mechanics of that? And what about those who've been cremated? How's he going to do that? (laughs) You ever wondered that question before? Verse 36, here's what Paul says, how foolish. (laughs) It's like, wow, tell us what you really think, Paul. Then for the second time in this passage, he, pour, he draws upon a gardening image to give his answer. Basically, he says, as, as a seed is to a blooming flower, so our present bodies will be when compared to our resurrected ones. It's a great image, I reckon, because when you look at a seed, like it, it's pretty impossible to tell what it's going to become, isn't it? Take the Texas mountain laurel, for instance. It's got a reputation for having very ugly seeds. These kind of large, greyish-looking pods. Over time, they, they blacken and wither, and then the seed just kind of pops out. I mean, looking at it, there's, there's really no hint that it will eventually become this. Pretty huge difference, right? And yet the seed and the flower actually remain closely connected, don't they? Because one was born out of the other... And the, and the flower is not the rejection of the seed, but rather it's, it's kind of the end goal, isn't it? The flower is like the final fulfillment of, of everything that the seed was meant to become. It takes on a new color and a new scent and a new size and a new shape. And yet the two are never entirely separated. They, they remain deeply connected. Verse 42, Paul says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. A tremendous newness, right? The the body that is sown is perishable, he says, but it's going to be raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Newness, right? Astounding and wondrous newness. I can't wait to see what that looks like. And yet there's going to be continuity as well. In your resurrected body, you will still be you. Recognizably and distinctly you. I mean, when when Jesus appeared all those many times, his disciples could, could, could recognize that it was him. Sometimes it took them a little while. But you know, the, the relationships and the memories and the experiences that they'd shared together, that was all carried across. He was still Jesus. It was still Him, but in a new and different and entirely better body. And so it will be with us. I guess the final question it leads us to is this. What difference does knowing that make to us now? If what happened then guarantees what's next, then it really ought to also reshape the what now. Why is that? Well, because we have hope. Sometimes when we say, I hope, we really mean it like, I wish, as if we're kind of hoping for a particular outcome, 
not really sure whether it's going to pan out that way, but, but we're hoping that it will. That's not the Christian hope. That's not at all how the New Testament talks about hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's actually to align your head and your heart towards an assured future. It's not a maybe. It's a, it's a certainty. I came across this definition this week by a theologian, J.I. Packer. might have heard of him before. I haven't been able to get it out of my head. It's brilliant. He puts it like this. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of this life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth, on the basis of God's own commitment, that the best is yet to come. I love that. Christian hope is knowing that the best is yet to come. I wonder though, is that what you believe? And not just to agree with in your mind, but do you actually live that out in your hearts? Is every area, every corner of your life shaped by that hope? That the best is yet to come. And if it did, what might it look like? I think the first way that this hope reshapes the what now is really how it comforts those who are living with loss. There are people here who every day have to face up to the loss of living with bodies and minds that are breaking down and the frustration and the pain and the struggle of having to do that, right? So when Paul says, these bodies are weak and perishable and dishonored, like, like we say amen to that, don't we? Some of us more loudly than others. But we're all surrounded by this reality, aren't we? The limitations and the vulnerabilities of this body. I mean, especially in the, in the middle of a global pandemic, like that truth is just right in our faces, isn't it? And however we might be feeling about our bodies right now, we actually all will be confronted with its frailty eventually, in one way or another. So to everyone who is living with loss, with the pain and the struggle of life in this body, well, then the certain hope of resurrection actually offers comfort. It does. It really does. Do not despair, because the best is yet to come. The day is soon, says Paul in verse 52. Flick to it, if you can. When we will all be changed, he says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. On that day, your pain's going to come to an end. Your tears will be wiped away. What is, what is now weak will then, on that day, be strong. What is now dishonorable will then be made glorious, and that's going to be the case forever. So may your certain hope in the next bring you comfort in the now. Another way I think this hope reshapes the present is the way it challenges those living for lots. You know, our, our world kind of operates in this frantic scramble to cram as much of this world into its pockets as it can. 
when this life is all there is and when death really is the end, then every moment matters more than the last. Paul actually explains the implication of this in verse, end of verse 32. If there's no resurrection, he said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and tom- for tomorrow we die. That's the tyranny of time, friends. There's only so much of it. And no one's got a clue how much we actually have left. And so in response, our world kind of operates at this breakneck pace, doesn't it? Driven by the frantic scramble to have more, to do more, to see more, to own more, to accomplish more, to experience more. Why? Because time's running out. And you know, if this life is all there is, then living for lots makes complete sense. That's the way you should be living. But it doesn't make any sense for us. Not for those who are in Him. Not for those who are united to Christ's resurrection. Why is that? Because we've got a certain hope, don't we? We know that the best is yet to come. That life is not all that there is. In fact, we ain't seen nothing yet. So just think of yourself for a moment. And all the areas in your life, your work, your family, your relationships, your money, your time. How easily and how often are we prone to forget that the best is yet to come? We so easily get swept up and carried along by the frantic scramble as it goes on around us. And we get drawn into that ever-present fear that we might somehow miss out. Ask yourself, honestly, what good things have you sacrificed in the name of that fear? What God things have you left by the wayside because you you've convinced yourself that you don't have the time. Friends, if the best is yet to come, then you cannot and you will not miss out. Not even a little bit. Because time is actually not running out. For those who are in Christ, the clock's actually stopped. Did you know that? It stopped the moment that the tomb was emptied. From the moment Jesus rose from the dead, we're now running on eternity time. Right now. And it's a completely different time zone to the one that our world operates in. Rather than living for lots, Paul calls on the Corinthians to live for the Lord. Such a great final verse here. I'm sad we didn't get to read it. Here's what he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain because it will not pass away, and neither will you. As the frantic scramble plays out around you, don't let it move you. Stand firm in a certain hope of your coming resurrection. And then I think a final way that this hope 
reshapes the what now is really the way that it calls to those who are living lost, to those who live without this kind of hope. So I guess at this point, I'm, I'm talking to anyone here this morning, whether you're in the building or whether you're online, who's not really sure what happens next. The gospel of Jesus makes an extraordinary claim. It, it reaches a, a crescendo by the end of this chapter. One of my favorite parts of Scripture, verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? What an extraordinary claim that is, that Jesus, who died, was buried, raised, and then who appeared, 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 that in doing so, he actually managed to put death to death. He put death to death. Imagine, imagine if that was actually true. What a difference that would make to your life. What a difference that would make to your death. Friends, resurrection is a reality. It's not some fanciful pipe dream. It's the beating heart of the Christian faith. And all it takes for you to share in Christ's victory is to take up, to take up the promise of your own resurrection by being in Him, to unite your life with His. And that means coming to Him. It means confessing that you need His death and His resurrection and then committing to follow Him with the rest of your life. That's what it takes. So maybe you've always suspected that there could be something after death. Perhaps you've really just been hoping, wishing that there might be. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus' resurrection guarantees that there is. And it invites you to join in. If you want to be in Him, but you know that you're not yet, then I'd love to talk to you. So maybe give the office a call, fill out that online connection card with the QR code, just come find me straight after this and we can chat. Friends, I started asking about your relationship to time. Perhaps a better question is, what's your relationship to the resurrection? Because the reality of resurrection actually fundamentally transforms the way we think about time. What happened then guarantees what's next and radically reshapes the what now. Past, present, future, everything changed the day Christ rose from the dead. So may we all be those who lived hope-shaped lives, content in the knowledge that the best really is yet to come. Let's pray. Father God, what a, what a wonderful hope we have found on the pages of your word this morning. A hope that is far more than just wishful thinking, but a hope that grounds us in the reality of what happened that day your son walked from the grave, the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Lord, may we look to that monumental moment in history and take comfort 
and get excited for the way it promises that we too will rise from the dead. Lord, we pray that that reality might not just shape the way we think about our futures, but it might change us in the here and the now as we respond uh, in that hope, taking on the comfort, resisting the frantic scramble and binding ourselves to you and to your resurrection. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. I think we're going to sing. So let's stand and sing.
Uh, well, as you can see, we're preparing to share together in the Lord's Supper. And it would be helpful. I did hear some people opening the top of their little uh, communion packs. It's worth doing that as we get underway. And for those of you who are at home, if, you're not, if you haven't got everything together yet with some bread and a, a cup, uh, now would be a great time to do that. Okay. What we're doing here as we share together in the Lord's Supper is we're, we're engaging in a, a simple ceremonial meal, uh, which gives us a chance to draw near to God in faith. And the bread and the cup are a very concrete way of taking us back to the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples as he prepared them for the significance of what was going to unfold as he went to the cross. The, the, the scriptures describe it this way, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and uh, when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying to them, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. One of the ways that we recognise the help we need from Jesus is by confessing our sins to him. So now we rightly recognise the ways that we fail to love God and honour him despite his great love for us. So please join me acknowledging our guilt, trusting in God's mercy and make a humble confession of our sins to Almighty God. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the schemes and desires of our own hearts and have broken your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done, and we have done what we ought not to have done. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore those who repent according to the promises declared to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that from now on we may live godly and obedient lives to the glory of your holy name. Amen. God is slow to anger. He is full of compassion. He forgives all who humbly repent and turn to him in Christ, in whom there is no condemnation. So friends, let's take some bread and as we eat it, let's remember the body of Christ which was given for us. And let's take up these little cups and as we drink, remember the blood of Christ which was given for us. 
And shall we join together in a, in a prayer of thanksgiving and of dedication. Lord, our Heavenly Father, in your loving kindness, accept our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Grant that by the merits and death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and your whole church may receive forgiveness of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. With gratitude for all your mercies, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen. Just before we close, I'll mention something I should have mentioned earlier, which is that from next Sunday, we're back to business as normal at St Matthew's. That is, we'll have four services here live in the building at 8 o'clock, at 10 o'clock, at 5 o'clock and at 6.30. It's wonderful to think that the doors will be open for each of our four services from next Sunday. And just for those of you who are at home, if you're able, we'd so love to see you here. Uh, be assured that we're doing everything to make this as, as safe an environment as possible. Uh, you certainly need to we'll check in uh, when you come and, and do bring a mask with you, although we have spares if you forget. Uh, and we do have the doors open, we have all the windows open, and we have some mechanical ventilation, just moving air through the building to make it as safe as possible. We would love to see you joining us here if you are able. But if you're not, we'll certainly be uh, taking measures to make sure that we're streaming live to you as well. Well, friends, it's been a, a real treat uh, to, through these opening weeks of the year, considering what it means to be at one with Christ, at one in Christ, in him, and all the benefits that fl flow from that, and the challenges as well. Uh, today we've come to the final in this little series as we've, we've considered what it means to be in him, the one who once was raised, who one day we will be with and will be like him. Just like that little seed planted in the ground grows into something which is entirely consistent with the seed, but something so much more brilliant and wonderful. So that is our hope in Christ. And it makes all the difference for the way we consider our future and the way we consider how we live our lives in the here and now knowing that this life is not the end, but it's just the beginning for those of us who are in Christ. So rather than read what I'd planned to read at the end of the service, I'll ask you to stand and I'm going to read for us the closing verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.